Hey, happy holidays or whatever you celebrate this time of year whenever you're listening. Uh, this is Justin Ladd. This is the Smoke Signals podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully your holiday was good or is going to be good. You're traveling safely and you're not drinking too much. And if you are, you're staying in and enjoying that with family. Uh, I'm joined by Michael Kuba. Michael, how are you doing? Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, whatever you celebrate. Justin, I'm doing good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on today. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Looking forward to spending some time with the family and talking a little bit of tribe today with you before before all the festivities start. Yeah, make sure you play the podcast tomorrow. While you guys are all sitting around opening presents, you should just play, make them listen to the podcast. <laughs> just in the background. Present. Yeah, here's your Christmas present. It's an Indian podcast. That way, you don't have to ask you all these questions. Like every every, every holiday I go to, all everyone in the family is just like asking about the Indians. And I'm like, just yep. listen to the podcast. If you just listen to the podcast, you know everything I'm going to say. That's like when you uh, that's like when you go to college and everyone wants to ask you like what are you doing where what are you studying how do you like it what clubs are you in and you just want to give them your resume just so they have it so they don't have to ask you everything <laughs> fifteen hundred times. Yeah, it saves everybody like a good half hour conversation so they can enjoy the rest of the day. Right. Well, we got lots to talk about and not a lot of time because we both have a lot going on. So let's jump right into it. The Indians signed Cesar Hernandez to a one year, six point two five million dollar deal. Uh, it is a one-year option. There's nothing else attached to it. So Hernandez will likely just be the Indian second baseman for uh, 2019. Had a bit of a down year in, in – I'm sorry, he'll be the Indian second baseman in 2020. He had a bit of a down year in 2020. His walk rate dropped a little bit. Um, but overall, he's been a pretty you know high on base guy throughout his career. Been a pretty decent hitter. Um, pretty good speed. Solid defender. Um, I think it's a pretty good sign. It's a pretty good fit. Of all the guys that were left on the free agent market, I thought he made the most sense just because the Indians seem to like switch hitters and he makes a lot of contact and he can hit towards the top of the order because he has that experience. So for, you know, one year, maybe they can move Ramirez back to second base next year. But I think for one year, that was a pretty good fit. Uh, what did you think of the signing? I liked him. I think we talked about this on a couple of podcasts ago, but it was between him and Estrubal Cabrera, who I was kind of targeting. So it makes sense. A one-year deal, reasonably priced, about market price for what second baseman we're getting. I think they – are banking on their ability to help him get back to the level that he was at pre 2019, but still incredibly valuable switch hitter. So now four switch switch hitting infielders um, on the team, which is kind of interesting, gives Tito a lot of flexibility to mix and match in other areas, carry a couple more guys on the bench that can platoon, especially with the outfield situation. Um, I think that considering the fact that a lot of his low, lowering and walk rate was due to, uh, I think, like you mentioned just now, the the chase rate growing up. I, I think that's something that if you, if you display good plate discipline for a majority of your career, uh, there was probably some type of functional shift in plate and plate uh, like approach. So if he can get back to where he was pre 2019 and even 2018, and started to kind of go away a little bit, his uh, average launch angle increased by like six degrees. So he really started trying to get the ball in the air more, and I think potentially playing more towards the skill set of slapping the ball around the diamond, which isn't in vogue nowadays, but I think there's a lot of value in that. I think the Indians see the value in that as well. So I like the signing a lot. I think it fits perfectly with what we have going on. I think it's an upgrade over Kipnis. Um, I'm really excited that they went out and got the best guy in the market for them that fit their needs, fit their payroll. Uh, Steamer's projecting 1.8 war in 2020, which is you know a pretty solid career or a pretty solid year overall. 
And you could easily surpass that. And even if he's in the 1.5 to 2, 2 range, he's not going to kill you. He's not going to win you games necessarily, but fits in with what they're trying to do. And he's a, and he's a bridge guy for knowing that we have other guys coming up in Freeman and Nolan Jones who are going to be occupying third and second base or shortstop, depending on where you want to put Freeman. So it's a, I think it's a great move. I'm really happy that they went out and did that. Um, and the fact that they went out and reinvested some of that money from, from Kluber so that people don't feel like this is a complete an utter rebuild or something, which obviously it's not. Yeah, no, I think everybody got upset over the Kluber trade and thought this was the end and they kept hearing all the Lindo rumors. And I, I don't understand people jump off that bridge. I think because there's so many teams in baseball that are going one way or the other. You have everybody who is either going for it or they're tanking. There's really not – it hasn't been a whole lot of middle class. I don't want to say middle class. That's a weird way to phrase it. But there's not a lot of – No, I mean, no one's trying to go 81 and 81, obviously. But I think teams are just deciding if they can't be a championship caliber club, they're going to tank until they can be, which I don't – I'm not sure I understand that. I think there are better ways to go about it. But that's kind of the way teams are following because it worked for Houston and it, uh, you know, worked for some other teams. And it's a copycat league. But – Obviously, they weren't going to be rebuilding. I really like the signing because, like you said, I think he fits in with what they have. And, um, and for a one-year stopgap, he's an upgrade over Kipnis. And, you know, he's really mostly a league average hitter. And I think people kind of discount the fact what a league average hitter is. Like, Jason Kipnis wasn't, wasn't particularly close to league average the last couple of years. And he was okay defensively last year by the metrics, I think. But I, I think people just don't realize like raising your floor with a player like Hernandez could do so much for the strength of your team um, because you're, you're giving yourself, you know, a, a more a better idea of what you're going to get from second base. I mean, he's been durable. Uh, he, you know, he sticks in his game. And, and I think those, those contact rates kind of carry over year to year. And like you said, the, you know, the walk rate wasn't great last year, but over his career, he's been pretty good about it. And I attributed his drop and walk rate to where he was hitting the lineup. You know, he was a leadoff hitter for a couple of years in Philadelphia when he had his best offensive years. And then he hit eighth mostly last year, which you're hitting in front of the pitcher. You're going to get a lot less to hit. You know, teams aren't going to really um, try to get you out because they're, they're more than willing to put you on base or make you get yourself out if they're going to face the pitcher. And I, I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. and we have no concrete way of knowing this, but I looked at the, the zone profile yesterday to see like what percentage of pitches he saw where last year. And, you know, obviously he had less at bats cause he hit lower in the order, but it definitely seemed like he saw a drop in, you know, strikes overall last year, percentage wise, you know, per plate appearance. So I wonder if he just got too aggressive uh, because he's used to seeing better pitches at the top of the order. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. Plus, you know, he's going to be probably, I, I would think the innings would hit him towards the top of the order. If you're hitting in front of Lindor and, Ramirez and Santana, or you know, I guess Mercado could still hit up there. You know, you're putting some good guys in front of him there to set him up for success. So I think there's a real good fit there, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him uh, have a better year than he did a year ago. But even if he has a year like he did a year ago, it's still an upgrade from what the Indians had last year, honestly, as much as I you know, like Jason Kipnis in his prime. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but that's a great point about what you said about hitting in front of the pitcher. I mean, you're not you're just inherently not going to see the same type of pitches you will at the at the top of the order. So, you know, that can affect a lot of different guys in different ways. So, hitting him pro- probably leadoff, I would think. I would love to get Lindor out of the leadoff spot just so that we can utilize his bat to drive in more runs instead of having to start out the game with him. I think 
you know, I, I'm not sure how I feel about hitting Mercado in the two hole. I don't know if he's quite there yet as being a guy that can consistently uh, move runners over, but also, you know, do a good job of driving in players as well. I think his on-base percentage needs some work. I, I could see him more as a, as a seven, eight, nine guy. Um, and not, not because I don't think he'll, he will be good or that there's value there, but I think he might be protected more near the end of the lineup and let Hernandez hit first. And then maybe you mix in Lindor in the two hole, uh, which some of the conventional wisdom says to put your best hitter in the two hole. And then you can have uh, Jose Ramirez hit third, Carlos Santana hit fourth, and then you can go down from there and, and you feel okay about yourself. You don't, you're not, you don't have the, a juggernaut lineup, but it's not, it's not horrendous. And like you said, higher floor. I mean, Hernandez, even in a bad year, put up 1.7 war last year. And that's pretty, pretty solid. He's basically near league average and, you know, he plays good defense, at least historically pretty fast. He sold a little bit less bases last year than he has. I think he's about to turn 30 years old soon. So maybe the legs aren't going to be what they once were, but I'm not super concerned about the base stealing aspect of things. Um, I like the move overall. I think it really helps the team and moving into one of our next points here. I think that kind of means that Lindor is probably staying just because I don't see why they would make this type of move to almost stay competitive, supplement the big league roster, but then go on and move Lindor. Then they're just spending $6 million to spend it for no reason. Like you said on Twitter, why would they not plug in somebody that they get in a trade or ride it out with Yu Chang or Christian Arroyo instead? Um, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. So I think that kind of means that Lindor's staying. But I don't, know if the, I don't know if you've changed your mind on that or if there's any more chatter that's come out that I missed. But I think Lindor's going to be here. No, I think I saw some people saying that they thought, well, maybe they're not going to go – after Gavin Lux now, or they realize they're not going to get him. And I'm like, well, if they're, I don't think their price for Lindor changes based on signing Cesar Hernandez. That would be really weird logic if they were like, oh, we got Cesar Hernandez. We don't need Gavin Lux now, or we know we're right. not going to get him. And, and the Indians are still, they're not taking the bet. They're not going to take whatever they can get from Lindor. They're seeing if there's an offer out there that makes sense. I think that's people have missed throughout these entire trade rumors. Is the headlines make it seem like the Indians are like, all right, give us your best offer and we'll trade them. That seemed to be the case for Corey Kluber. I think they seemed like they were ready to move on from Kluber, and they took the best offer. But with Lindor, I don't think it's the case. I don't think they're just like, okay, let's let's just take the best offer and be done. No, they're if they if they get an offer that makes sense, they'll do it. But yeah, I haven't changed my mind. I I don't think I don't think their price for Lindor changes based on Cesar Hernandez. Uh, I don't think they settle for less, and I don't think just because they have Hernandez doesn't mean they're. Or like you said, it, it, they're, they're suffering the big league roster. They're not – I don't think that puts them in – I still don't think that – they're not rebuilding even if they trade Lindor. They're trying to retool, and, yeah, if they trade Lindor, 2020 is probably going to be more like 2019 uh, than a step forward like you'd hope in 2020. I think if they traded Lindor, they'd probably be kind of stuck where they were last year where they're not quite good enough, especially because the division's getting better. But they would be setting themselves up for, you know, 2021 and beyond as well, but – yeah, I think with Hernandez, you're not looking at that. You're looking to see if you can win in 2020 and then kind of go from there because maybe you'd go – like they probably would have signed Travis Shaw if they were trading, trading Lindor, I would think, because you'd be banking on someone with a little more upside. Like Shaw was a 30-home run hitter two years ago. Hernandez is a safe bet. Shaw, you know, maybe he is done. I don't think Shaw's done, but he could be. Why wouldn't you go and sign a guy that's got a little more upside – um, if you think that you were going to trade Lindor rather than giving yourself someone safe to pair next to him uh, if you're trying to win in 2020. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. I think, I, I mean, I, I was interested in Shaw, but yeah, the upside is not quite as set in stone as it is with uh, Cesar Hernandez. And I, I think that going into next year, they don't, uh, they don't want to have a bunch of bats in the lineup that they're not quite sure what they're going to get. Um, they need some consistency going forward. So I, I, I like the move. I don't think it, I, 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 like I said before, I don't think Lindor is going anywhere. I also, uh, I don't think that now that we have Cesar Hernandez, unless something goes horribly wrong, I think Jones, Nolan Jones is probably going to be in the minors for the majority of this season. Uh, he got to double A last year. He hit pretty well. Strikeout rate went up a little bit, but there was some decent power. I think they're going to let him ride it out at double A for a little bit, move him up to triple A by the end of the season. And unless he's tearing the cover off the ball, like you can't keep this guy down. They're going to let him stay in the minors for one more season. And then going into 2021, he'll be competing for a starting spot in spring training. And at worst, we'll be up at some point in May, June-ish. But I think this is good too. We don't want to rush his development. He's still a young player. He's a really good young player. And forcing him to come up earlier than he needs to. Like I saw, I saw someone arguing last year at the end of the year that the Indians playing Yu Chang was stupid because Nolan Jones could come up in and have a better, uh, like do better in, in big league games than him. And I, and I was like, do you, do you understand how this stuff works? I mean, he's having a great career in double A currently, but there, it's different. And every guy needs an adjustment period at every level everyone's different as well on their development. And for a guy like him, who's still kind of trying to get his footing at third, I, I'm, I'm so bullish that he can, he can stick at third for at least a little bit, but he's not super mobile. Um, he's a big bodied kid. So, and also adjusting to pitching at each level, he's got really good play discipline. He's got a good eye at the play, but he does strike a lot, strike out a lot. So if pitchers start attacking him a different way, you could see him struggle a little bit to start, of maybe expanding the zone or not understanding what they're trying to do. But I think he's smart enough that he'll, he'll pick up on it eventually. Um, but I think that means that he's definitely going to stay down. I don't, I wouldn't expect unless something drastic happens, like he is absolutely crushing the baseball Gavin Lux style in triple a, and we have to call him up because it just makes the most sense. I don't think that he's going to be up at all this year now. No, I, I don't think he ever was going to, not unless the Indians were truly rebuilding, which we know they weren't going to. Uh, he's he's not ready. I'm I'm super excited about Jones's future. I think his offensive profile is gonna be is gonna translate really well to majors. Uh, he reminds me a, a ton of Carlos Santana in, in terms of uh, the Ohio BP and the ability to to for the extra bases. But yeah, there's there was probably no world in which he was in the major leagues this year, and he shouldn't have been, especially if the Indians are trying to compete this year. So uh, good good to keep him down another year. Like you said, if he's, if he's tearing the cover off the ball and you really can't keep him down, then, you know, you've got a great problem where you can, Oh, and there's a 26 man roster now. So maybe, you know, at some point you can find room for him. If he's really hitting the ball and you can rotate uh, Ramirez at DH or give him a day off with Jones and DH Jones or something, if that really comes to it. But yeah, I, I definitely think he needs another year in the minors and <clears throat> he's still got a ways to go defensively and, He's not the fastest guy, obviously, but he's a big kid. I'm, like I said, I'm super excited about his future. I think 2021 will be a good year to see him. You know, maybe Ramirez moves to second then, and they have uh, uh, Jones at third. And that'll be exciting to see. But there was probably no reason to have him up this year. And 
again, this just makes the Indians better for 2020 overall to give Jones more development. They keep Lindor for another year. And they, like I said, they give them, they give themselves a high floor for Hernandez at second base. Um, and I, I hope Jason Kittness also, you know, finds a, some kind of minor league contract. I don't think his market's going to be super strong, but I hope he ends up somewhere. You know, he had a good, it was a good run with, with Kipnis in his best days. And, you know, he had some good moments here uh, over the last couple of years. And I think that's a, a good way to transition to what we really wanted this podcast to be about uh, before the Hernandez signing. Oh, I did want to mention too, uh, before we move on to that, actually, I don't really know what the Indians will do the rest of the off season. I, don't, I think we both did agreement. They're not going to trade Lindor. I don't know what kind of money they're going to spend the rest of the year. Cole Calhoun just went to the Diamondbacks for, uh, two years and like 18 million, I think. I kind of liked him. I know people mentioned Corey Dickerson, and some people mentioned Will Harris for the bullpen. I think both of those guys could make sense. I just don't know what the Indians are going to spend at this point. I would imagine they're not going to exceed what they paid Hernandez for anything else. So if those guys drop down to the six million dollar a year range, I would guess they might sign one of them, but that would be it, I would think. Yeah, I don't know if I would have wanted to pay Cole Calhoun $9 million a year for two years. I, not that I don't think he, there's value there, but I don't know how much different he is than what we already kind of have. I think a lot of these guys are names that aren't with the team. So, And Cole, Cal- Cole Calhoun has had really good years. So has Corey Dickerson. I, I just don't know if that's where I would want to reinvest the money, specifically in a guy like Cole Calhoun. Corey Dickerson kind of worries me only because I feel like if you look at his – uh, ex Wobas and all the years he's hit really well. It's always near league average. He, like last last season, in less plate appearances, he had a 368 Woba, but a 318 X Woba. The year before, 341 Woba, 332 X Woba. The year before that, 341 Woba, 324 X Woba. So, is he? I mean, I, he's a good he's a good hitter. He puts the bat on the ball. He's not a super big power guy, but it. Do they look at him and say the value of this? these marginal dollars that we're spending on the fringes, does it make sense to go out and sign this guy? Is he really going to be a massive upgrade over what we have? And I think a lot of the times they look at it and they go, no, we don't think that this guy is going to make so much of a difference that it makes sense to spend the money that we are trying to be smart with on guys like that. So I don't see anybody, maybe, maybe they go out and get a guy like Hunter Pence on a really cheap one year, you know, $2 million deal with incentives or a spring training invite. He had a lot of, you know, good success last year with a altered swing approach. And he um, had good ex and hard hit percentages. And it, it, it looked like it wasn't fluky. He really did have a solid season last year. And he probably is cheap as an older guy. He's probably not an outfielder anymore. So that's the only thing of why that probably wouldn't work because he's not going to be able to play an outfield and we don't need more DH types. But um, I don't see them doing that. I don't, I would like Will Harris a lot. Obviously the metrics love him with the, the curveball spin, um, the fastball spin, he's a little bit older, but I, I don't like paying relievers a lot. And the Indians certainly don't want to pay relievers a lot either. I think MLB trade rumors projected him at like $9 million, maybe two years, 18. And I, I just don't see them doing that. I think if there's anything, they'll, they'll go after guys like they traditionally do on either $1 million, $2 million deals or spring training invite guys that they can, assess if they have the upside in spring training and then decide whether or not they want to keep them. But I, I mean, and if, like I said, if they go out and they sign Corey Dickerson, I'm not going to be upset. I'm not going to say, Oh, this, this is stupid. I just think that the Indians really like to keep flexibility for the entire season. I think their mantra is 
the the roster is not set in stone until the trade deadline and having money available to them in excess at the trade deadline allows them to make different types of moves that they might not be able to have if they use all of their budget at one time. So I think it makes sense to, if obviously there's, you can debate whether or not they have the money or don't have the money. That's not the point here. The point is they're operating in this way. They see X amount of dollars as the budget they're not going to exceed and if we're talking about marginal dollars left, let's say they have five to $10 million that they could realistically spend. If there's nothing that's worthwhile now that significantly makes them better, I think they'll hold on to it. So then when they have the trade deadline come up, they can say, hey, we're comfortable taking on three, four or $5 million of this guy's salary because we know that we have the flexibility to do so. They like to assess what the team's like in April and May and then make the determination in June and July of what they need to make the team better. And they've consistently shown that they're going to go out and do something to make the team better when it makes sense. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't guess that they're going to do anything of significance. Um, if they do great, I think maybe that will make people feel good. I just don't think spending money to spend money makes them any better. They're not going to sign Ozuna. They're not going to go out and get Castellanos, no matter how much you like his bat. He's not a good outfielder. They don't need another <laughs> DH. So it doesn't matter. They're, it, I, they're not going to go out and pay Castellanos four years, 54. They just, they just don't do that. So you're looking at the Corey Dickerson's of the world. And if they don't see that being better, which I don't personally think that he would be significantly better than what we have. And I'm talking like significantly better, not a war, you know, one war, you know, a couple extra home runs or a couple extra RBIs or whatever you like to look at. Like I'm talking it's significant. Then that money makes no sense to spend. So I don't know how you feel about that. That was a little bit of a long winded answer, but that's kind of my take on, on the situation with what we have left over to spend and if we'll use it. No, I'm with you. Like you said, I wouldn't be upset about Chris Dick, uh, Corey Dick, Chris Dickerson, Corey, Corey Dickerson. Corey. Yeah, I had to get, I had to get the one right there because Guinness already had one of those guys, uh, and he wasn't good. Hopefully, he doesn't listen to the podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he he would definitely raise their floor, which I think is important to look at la- after last year. You know, the uh, fiasco with Carlos Gonzalez and Hanley Ramirez, and uh, you know, I I. As, as painful as it was to watch Max Moroff and uh, – uh, Eric Stamets. Yeah, they really didn't – I the Indians were still good in April last year. They didn't they didn't ruin the Indian season by playing for two weeks or three weeks. The Indians were a good team in April because their their bullpen performed way above average in April, so they were able to, to mask some of the offensive issues. Uh, I think it was really – and they, I guess Hanley didn't stick around too long either after, but they played Carlos Gonzalez way too long. I mean, the guy hit cleanup and they DFA'd him the next day. That was pretty crazy to see. Um, I think signing someone like Dickerson avoids having to do something like that, and it raises your floor a little bit. So that's important because I think that would have helped the Indians a lot last year uh, early in the season before they got hot in the second half or whatever it was, June and July. So from that aspect, I'd be cool with it. But yeah, I'm with you that if they're you can't just spend to spend, especially if the, the front office is being given a tight budget. And like you said, money is a different thing. Let's just, you know, look at what the front office can and can't do. And if they're given a specific budget, I wouldn't just spend to spend. But at the right at the right price, Dickerson would help raise the floor. Same with Will Harris. I don't know if there's any other outfields out there I really like. Um, so platoon, because really they just need a, a left fielder to platoon with Luplo. Because I think you're going to have Mercado and Johnson and Luplo and Daniel Johnson at some point this year and um, the shields. Yeah. He's going to play. I, I think really, it's just, I think it's just me being down in Jake Bowers. I don't want to see Jake Bowers out there platooning with Greg Allen or 
or to Shields because I really am down on Bowers after last year. I know he's so young, but that's kind of my reasoning for getting another outfielder is I don't want to see him start the year in left field because I still think he needs some work on AAA. I think I feel like I feel like from what I've heard, his issues didn't necessarily because there's always there's always been talent there, right? I mean, the, the prospect evaluators loved the hit tool. They thought it was nearly nearly a sixty, not quite. It was like more like a fifty-five with like fifty power. He's a little bit more athletic. He probably play uh, an average to above average first base. He's palatable in the outfield. I wouldn't say he's elite, but he doesn't he doesn't hurt himself so much that you can't play him out there. It seemed like it came from a lack of uh, having an approach and being consistent on a day-to-day basis, something that he needed to learn and work on because he would get in slumps. He would, when he would, like, I think what Tito came out and correct me if I'm wrong, said something about how if he was hitting really well, he wouldn't go out and take BP. If he was struggling, he would take extra rounds. He was so inconsistent with what he did on a day-to-day basis that it was hard to find a rhythm and, and be feel good on a day-to-day basis. So I'm still, opt, uh, you know, optimistic that he'll be good um, or at least solid for us. Maybe not amazing, but I think there's a little bit of pressure, not just on Bowers, but on the front office to let him develop because of the way that the trade was perceived with Yandy Diaz of how Yandy had a really good year last year, even though, you know, uh, he didn't end up really finishing the year off because of some of the injuries. But I think they're going to give him an opportunity to play. And that's why I don't see them necessarily expanding themselves to get another outfielder. But I agree with your point on it would hire the floor of the team. You wouldn't have to see certain guys out there that probably shouldn't be playing a whole lot. And I wouldn't be opposed to it depending on the price. Um, It's just being smart. And I, you know, I I hope that Bowers comes back ready to play this year. He's going to be the first baseman probably after Santana leaves this next year, because I don't know if they'll resign him or if, unless they'll take like a team friendly deal and then maybe you do because his profile seems like it might age decently uh, as a guy who sees the plate really well, hits for a little bit of power, switch hitter, plays first base. Um, there's a there's a chance that happens, and maybe they want to see Bobby Bradley. I'm not a huge Bobby Bradley fan, but that's for a different time. Um, so yeah, I, I get I get your point. We'll see what they do. I don't expect anything, but if they do do something, that would be great, and we'll show that they're trying to, like you said, hire the floor of what this team can do and hope that the stars around them can lift everybody else up. Um, and as opposed to having scrubs at other positions and praying that you get good pitching and, and good bullpen help throughout the year. So we'll see how it goes, but I definitely like where they're at right now. And I think they're going to be extremely competitive and no matter what the White Sox do, giving Keuchel a absolutely horrendous contract um, to bring him in there. And I get, I get what they're trying to do, but it wasn't a good deal by any means for them. So, and I still don't think the White Sox are going to be a major threat to what we do this year. They will be, but I think they're still a year away. So I think we have a good chance of winning the division and I'm looking forward to spring training starting so we can see how this team is going to shake up. Agreed. Although I'm a little bit higher on the White Sox, I think at this point, but we'll, uh, we'll get into that after the new year. Uh, the real reason we're going to do this podcast is because we wanted to do a kind of a moments of the decade thing if we didn't have any news and obviously the Hernandez news gave us a chance to break things down from a different angle uh, in addition to the signing overall but uh, I came up with five of my best moments of the decade Uh, I also came up with 
uh, just some other random ones that I remember I thought were worth mentioning before we close the decade out and wanted to go down some memory lanes. So uh, do you have a top moment of the decade or do you want to start with number five and work your way to number one? I'd rather do five and work my way down and then we can just kind of briefly go through some of our honorable mentions of just, you know, throw them out there. Um, Do you want to do all five in a row or do you want to do five, five, four, four and go like that? Let's do five, five, four, four. So who, okay. who's your number five moment of the decade? Okay. So I already, I mean, I, I saw what your, uh, I saw the outline for the podcast. So I know what your number one is. My number five is the 22 game win streak. Um, I hate to admit it, but I actually forgot about it until last night. I, I had re- written down a bunch of other uh, things that had happened and I went back and I went, Oh, like I completely forgot about the 22 game win streak. Uh, that was incredible. That was a, uh, you know, a lot of these are going to be when I was still in college. So I remember a lot of these memories are from me doing things with my friends or for this case, uh, when we broke that, when we came back in extra innings against the Royals uh, to extend the streak to get to 22, I was working for the Reds at the time and we had a game and I was in like the 50, 50 raffle room, watching it on TV with a couple of my friends that also wanted to see what was happening. And I remember freaking out when, Lindar bangs the ball off the left field wall. Alex Gordon misses it. We score the tying run. And then seeing Jose run around the bases and extend the next inning, you know, Kane lollygags over to a ball. Ramirez hustles out of the box, gets a double. Jay Bruce fouls off a million pitches and then drops one right down the right field line to win the game. It was just an incredible feeling. 100 plus 105 run differential in that span was the best in MLB history in a 22 game streak or 22 game span since the 1939 Yankees. So pretty incredible, a lot of fun. I, I'll never forget, you know, just wait every single day. So excited and watching how our win, uh, the win totals and on the standings columns just kept going up, started out 70 and 56 and we ended at 92 and 56 and, and feeling really good about where we were at. I thought that was our year. Unfortunately it didn't work out that way, but that was a really good memory for me. Yeah, I'm with you. Obviously, that's that was my number one, so we can just skip that. That was my number one. I I remember where I was, when, like you said, when the uh, they came back against the Royals. I watched a lot of those games, and it was just amazing what their run differential was throughout that stretch. They just were – I mean, obviously, they were beating up on bad teams, but they just pulverized the White Sox, the Tigers. Uh, you know, they, they swept the doubleheader with the Yankees uh, in that stretch too. Maybe they took four, four in a row against the Yankees or – at least three. I mean, so there wasn't all bad teams, but yeah, they were just coming out, getting out to early leads and smoking teams. And man, it was just fun to watch because every game they were just getting ahead. And I love that it, the last game of the, of the winning streak was actually the walk-off because that was just, it was just so fun to watch the way it all unfolded, you know, with Jay Bruce getting the game winning hit and Lindor tying it up. And just that, that, that year was just great. I know, they didn't, like you said, it didn't end the way we all wanted it to or all fans would have wanted it to. But the reason it's number one for me is because in my lifetime, the Indians have been to the World Series three times, and I don't expect I'll ever see them win 22 games in a row the rest of it. So that was a pretty easy call for me from that aspect. I like that rationale. Um, so what's your number five then? My number five is actually the Rajay Davis game seven home. It might be higher for everybody else. That's my number um, one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised. I think it's just because I mean, it, it, not because they lost still. Like I still love that moment because it gives me goosebumps when I watch it still. Um, but I, I think there are just some other personal reasons I had other others higher. But 
that was definitely a top five moment uh, of the last decade for sure. I just, I, I just stands out to me because I was so, I was so that, that uh, playoff run was so much fun and I was so invested in it. And I just remember I went to a bar near my apartment in Cincinnati and I'm watching with my friends. It's like half Cubs fans, half Indians fans, the place is packed. We're down early. Kluber finally tires out. You feel bad for him. It was, you know, seeing Dexter Fowler run backwards around the bases at the beginning of the game made me so mad. And I, and I just didn't want to lose to the Cubs and Davis comes up. It's like a hope and a prayer that he even puts the bat on the ball, chokes up all the way to the, to the Louisville slugger logo on the bat and yanks the ball down the, the line on Chapman, one of the most dominant pitchers of the decade. Uh, you know, seeing LeBron in the stands with the Cavs going crazy. It's a, and I, I find myself every single time I watch that video looking for different reactions of different people of like how they were feeling in that moment. I love when they pan out to um, by the queue outside the stadium near the home run porch and, and everyone, you can see the fans outside realizing what's happening and then everyone goes nuts. And there's a few Cubs fans that are on, on the side, like, Oh crap, like this sucks. So <laughs> it was, it was a lot of fun. That one's n- number one. I think it's just sentimental. I watched that video a couple times a month <laughs> and uh, you know, even though we didn't win, it's it's still a great memory, one of the best World Series I think I'll ever see in my lifetime. And also, didn't want to forget to mention this, but I don't remember what inning it was. I think it was bottom nine when Kipnis yanked the ball down the right field line, and from oh, wow. the angle of the camera, it looked like he hit a walk-off home run. And everyone in like everyone I was around was like going crazy. And then it was literally so far foul. If we had even been able to see the other side, we would have known. But that still sticks out to me too. Yeah. Yeah, I've watched that replay a couple times, and I definitely drove myself nuts over it a couple times. So, yeah, we don't need to get deep into that one. I definitely thought – I may have screamed a little bit. I thought for sure that was a game-winning homer, and I was definitely ready to go out and celebrate. So, it didn't happen. But it would have been it would have been number one, obviously, if that had happened. Uh, my number four was uh, Tome, Tome coming. To, I don't know how you even want to say it. Tommy's homecoming and mm-hmm. – uh, 2011, the Indians got him back in late August after Hafner went on the DL, and uh, they didn't make the playoffs, but it was super cool to be there for Jim Tomey's. I actually got to go to the game, and it was super cool to be there for his first at-bat back and just see him kind of get to close the book on being an Indian the right way after all those years being gone. That was extremely exciting, especially in a year where things kind of fizzled out fast. Yeah, that was a good one. I remember I remember all my friends wanted to go to that game. I didn't actually end up going, but it was really cool to see him back in an Indians uniform. Um, I actually didn't have that one on my list, though. I don't know if it's because I we grew up – you probably remember watching Tommy a lot more distinctly than I do. He was kind of already gone. I mean, not that I didn't try to emulate him, but it, it wasn't the same experience for me because I was a little bit younger. Um, so that one wasn't actually on my list. My number four was the Tyler Naquin walk-off inside the park home run. Uh, that one was a really cool one for me. I had, I wasn't actually watching the game at the time. I, I didn't know what happened. I checked my phone. I saw that we won. It said, it said, uh, Nate when hit a home run. So I assumed that it was going to be a, just a normal home run. But then I noticed that it was like, it was a solo shot. So I didn't know Jose hit one before. And then I went back and watched the replay of it and saw him sprinting around the bases and, uh, BJ Upton falling in the outfield. And I, I'm not even kidding. I immediately Five minutes later, I bought a Tyler Naquin jersey on Fanatics and had it delivered uh, the next week. And I still have it. I still wear it to games today. And it was just because of that, to that inside the park home run. So that was a good memory for me. 
Heck yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a good memory. I, I watched that game and watched him come back. I uh, watched the, the home run and then looked like it was going to be a walk-off. It was a walk-off home run, but it looked like it was going to be a uh, – wasn't going to be a home run after the way it went out, but that was pretty good. That was – it was a good run. It wasn't part of the, the winning streak in 2016, but, man, there that was some incredible moments and probably the one that I think sticks out most to people about Tyler Naquin. Uh, what was your number three? Uh, so my number three was the Jason Giambi walk-off. That one – that was when I really, I mean, we, the Indians had to win. Texas and the Rays both had won that day. They were in this, you know, the thick of the wild card race between the three teams, which actually obviously ended up shaking out where Texas and the Rays played to get into the wild card anyways. But um, we had to win. It would have been bad if we didn't. Prez blows the game. John B comes up and saves the day. And I just, I think I told this story on the podcast before, but I'm, you know, tape delay. I'm watching one TV. My mom's watching one upstairs. I heard her scream before I did. And then I noticed that that Jami waxed the ball. And it was, it was a really cool, a really cool experience. I'll never forget that one. That was a, a really fun run getting back to the playoffs, even if it was just a wild card, even if we lost the game for the first time in a while since 2007 was a really cool experience and that was a fun team to get behind after they go out and they signed Swisher and they signed Bourne and they tried to make an attempt to be better and um, compete again and they felt like they were in that point so that was that was a good memory for me what's your number three uh, my number three was game one of the LDS, LDS against Boston in 2016 had the uh, you know three home runs in a row by Perez Kipnis and Lindor and mm-hmm. Mike, Na- Mike Napoli just missed a home run it was went really far. I think it was pretty foul. I don't think he just missed, but he hit the crap out of it. And then we kind of saw in that game, Terry Francona's plan for the bullpen, you know, Andrew Miller came out, what, like the fifth or sixth inning or something. Yep. He, he was kind of wild to start. Cause you know, maybe nerves or whatever, but he got the job done, but that kind of showed you the formula Indians were going to use to win, uh, or at least Francona. And he kind of changed the way bullpens operated for a while. Uh, starting pitching, starting to come back or, you know, they're doing different things as a thanks to Boston. But, you know, Frank Kona kind of changed the way bullpens were used in the postseason that day. And uh, I just remember the energy in that the ballpark. That was the first, you know, division. I know I was there for 20. I was there for the wild card game. And there was a lot of energy for that, too. But there was a very different kind of energy in that ballpark uh, for the ALDS in 2016. And after those three home runs were hit, that place was just ready to blow. It was insane. And then I actually had Giambi the home run number two. I was also at that game. Surprisingly, all the ones I picked, except for the, actually Davis on the 22 game winning streak. I didn't, I don't think I was at the final one, but uh, I picked a couple of these cause I was there. And I remember, like I said, Giambi hit the homer and uh, Perez blew the save. I, they were down, they went down, they were up three to two, went down four, three. And I remember sitting there next to a couple of friends uh, and everyone's like, oh, I hope, you know, I hope Giambi just gets a hit or draws a walk and keeps this thing going because Brantley was on second. And I was like, there's no way. This game ends with Giambi. He's either in a home run or striking out. I said, this is the end of the game right here, no matter what. And he hit that home run, and I couldn't believe it. That, and like you said, that propelled them. They needed every win at that point to get in the playoffs. And I think Jason Giambi kind of gets lost in the formula for how the Indians have been so successful since 2013. You know, I know he wasn't a great player when he was here. He had some good moments, but overall his numbers obviously weren't good. Uh, he didn't play a ton, but I think his veteran leadership, I know everybody likes to crap on this sometimes because, you know, veteran presence and sign somebody good doesn't really matter, whatever. 
I just think his presence in the locker room, you know, teaching Kipnis, teaching Brantley, teaching Cody Allen, just all these guys that were good and they were a good core together, but they weren't really sure like how they go about being the kind of team they wanted to become. Uh, and he kind of showed in the way for that. So I think his credit kind of goes un, ungiven at times for how good the Indians have been since 2013. So that's kind of why I picked that moment because it was a good moment, but I also wanted him to recognize as some of the bigger moments of the decade, because I think he has a big part in how good the Indians are right now. No, I like that. That's a good, that's a good rationale for it. Um, that one, that one was important to me. My dad was actually the, at the John B game, but I wasn't. So um, I like, it, it makes sense of putting the ones that you were at, or there's some type of memory attached to it. That's why it ranks so highly uh, and it's different for everyone. So it's, I'm glad that we're doing this just to be able to kind of talk back and, where we were, what we were thinking, all these great moments. Cause it was a, it was a pretty good decade for Indians baseball. Um, a lot, you know, 10, 11, 12 weren't great, but 13 on has been phenomenal. I mean, we've been a winning, we've had winning seasons every single season. So um, I really like where we're at. Uh, my, my number two and the last one, cause my number one was Raja Davis is the Kluber 18 strikeout game. I have that number two because I don't know if I'll ever see an Indians player ever do something like that again. And not that we don't have the type of players um, that could do it because we, we've always had a really good pitching staff in the last three, four or five years. But that was the most dominant I've ever seen anybody look in their life. And I, I watched it like I was watching innings here and there. But once I noticed he was really racking up the strikeouts, I started watching like intently. And then I went back after and rewatched the entire game. And he it was unbelievable. St. Louis couldn't do anything against him. That was the year right after the Cy Young. Kluber started out slow. He had lost his first seven games or didn't record a win, I guess. He was like 0-4, but he had an over-5 ERA. I think people were starting to talk about, wow, is Kluber really that good? Is it, does it have anything to do with – was he a lightning-in-the-bottle type player? He wasn't getting any run support. Um, and then he comes out and absolutely dominates. Eight innings pitched, one hit, no walks, no runs, 18 strikeouts, seven balls total in play, and 113 pitches. And – and that kind of springboarded him going forward. He ended up finishing the year 9-16, 348, 349 ERA, 297 FIP, but 5.6 war. But his next three appearances after that game, he threw a complete game uh, with 12 Ks and one walk and lost. He threw eight innings, no walks, seven Ks and one, and then uh, seven innings, one walk, 13 Ks and one. So he started to get back on track after that, but – I mean, that, that's peak Corey Kluber when Corey Kluber and that, you know, it makes me miss him thinking about that because he was, his stuff was as good as anybody's and he was so good at painting the corner, setting hitters up, sequencing, everything played off each other. And that was, I mean, that was, I think, and also if you look at it, I don't know if, I don't really look at game score that much, that, that stat that Bill James kind of created to uh, analyze pitcher performances, but he had like, it's like out of a hundred and he had like a 99, I think like only like one or two other players have ever gotten that high. Um, I think Pedro Martinez or one of the guys who had like 20 Ks, I don't know, maybe it was Kerry Wood. Um, did Pedro Martinez ever have 20 Ks or close to it? I think he had a 19. I don't know. I'm okay. Not really sure. But those guys had upper echelon games like that as well. So it was, it was a pretty incredible moment. And I, I'll always remember watching that and thinking about how dominant Kluber was. Yeah, that was like you said. That was that's probably that was a twenty-two game winning streak. Like just because, like you said, you might never see that from Indians pitcher again. Uh, who knows how many pitchers you'll see that from again? I mean, I know there's a lot of strikeouts in the game now, but it's pretty rare. I think he struck out fourteen in a row at, at one point, didn't he? Yeah, it was something like that. It was a crazy amount in a row. And and if you look, 
I remember there was a whole Fangraphs article after, and they were just breaking down all the every at bat, and it was just the way that he was tunneling his pitches and playing everything off each other and remembering what he did the, at bat before and then attacking hitters differently. Nobody could get comfortable with him, and it was it was pretty incredible. And like I said, I went back and I rewatched the entire start again, and he was so dominant. It I don't think we'll ever see that type of dominance again. And and you could put Carrasco's near no hitter in Tampa in that where he was very dominant as well, but Kluber was far and away better in his outing, obviously. And unfortunately he gave up the one hit and I think it was pretty late in the game or else. I think that's, I think that's why they took him out. I don't quite remember specifically of when he gave up the hit, but I think it was later on like seventh inning on somewhere seventh or eighth. Um, and that's when they were like, okay, it's may we're not going to, we're not going to extend you too much, but I wish he would have stayed in and tried to get 20. That would have been, that would have been pretty cool. Yeah, that's uh, you said something there. And I kind of forgot about the Carrasco one too, unfortunately, because that was a pretty cool one. He came pretty close. I think like Cody Anderson got pretty deep into the game with a no hitter in that series too. Now that we're kind of past the top five and, and talking about some honorable mentions, I think that week was Carrasco and Anderson. And did somebody else come close during that series of that week to throwing a no hitter? They had a couple guys that got super close i vaguely remember what you're talking about but i have no idea if it was cody anderson or tj house or whoever it would have been (laughs) i was a big cody anderson fan still am i hope he he signs somewhere that was fun fun little run he had there uh what do you have in honorable mentions i mean i put some other some there's some good and bad stuff in my honorable mentions i had the 18k game in there obviously from kluber but um, I just had a bunch of random like moments, games, seasons, just random stuff in here. So uh, what kind of stuff do you have on your list that didn't quite make the top five? I'll go through and I'll just quickly highlight just a few points about the games that I have in here. Uh, I had signing Edwin in 2016 in my top five until I remembered Naquin and the 22 game win streak later on. And then I took him out. Uh, but I felt like that was important because that showed after coming off a world series that the Indians were ready to compete. I remember putting together on, you know, uh, index paper or like sheets of paper, you know, how's our lineup going to look with Edwin in it. We finally showed up the money three or 60, you know, 480 with the option. It was a really big moment watching Heyman say that it was between the Indians and the, and the A's or the Indians, whoever were still in the race to get him. And that was really important to me. Uh, to show that the Indians were here. It's unfortunate that we, you know, didn't, didn't totally work out in 2018, 17, he had a pretty good year, but never got to where we wanted to go, but it was an important moment in Cleveland Indians history. 2011 as Dribble Cabrera, specifically the barehanded play he made against Pittsburgh and deep in the hole. I don't know if you remember that. It was like a gloomy June day and uh, some guy on the, on the pirates that I don't think ever really played after this, <laughs> this season hit a line shot in the, in the hole and he went back barehanded it behind like to his right and then threw off balance and got him. And that was just a year of highlight plays for us. Drew Bull made a lot of great plays, finished with his best season as a player at 3.7 war was an all-star. So that was when I was still playing baseball. So I wanted to be as Drew Cabrera uh, trying to wear the sleeve on the arm and, and do the things that he was doing. Kosuke Fukudome walk off hit by pitch. Um, that one's kind of random. I I didn't really remember it. We, I think we talked about it briefly, but I did a little bit more research in it. Um, this is how the inning started. It was a, there was a rain delay. So Masterson got knocked out early. The bullpen threw 12 innings of scoreless relief. Here's, here's what the, the snippet of the article says. Uh, Cabrera started out the rally with a one out walk. 
Travis Hafner, Hafner ripped the single pass. Carlos Guillen at second to move Cabrera to third. Santana, Carlos Santana was intentionally walked to bring Fukudome to the plate. And then, and then the pitcher hit Fukudome, who had struck out in his previous four at-bats with a one-two pitch in the left form, and we won. So that's a pretty cool just random tidbit that I don't think anybody really remembers. Um, I Ryan, don't. yeah, I, I didn't know what the story was behind it. I just remembered it happening. And when I read that, I thought that was hilarious. He struck up four times and he gets hit down in the count to win the game. Um, Ryan Merritt, ALCS, little cowboy. Oh, yeah. How, Jose, how could that not be in our top fives, actually? Yeah. That was that, huge. Big moment. Uh, we really needed it with the Bauer drone injury. Someone to eat some innings. Jose Bautista talking about he's going to be quaking in his boots. Um, I was super nervous that he was going to get hit around. Comes out, has one of the gutsiest performances you've ever seen. Four inning, four and a third, two hits, no runs, three Ks, and a, an important elimination game um, for us to to go to the World Series and and you know getting all the Indians fans sending him stuff to his registry, that, which was pretty cool. So that's a great story. Roberto Hernandez uh, or Roberto Hernandez, <laughs> Roberto Perez. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I have a different one. Uh, Roberto <laughs> Perez, two home run game in the World Series. Luke Ray blocking the trade. Everyone was upset about it. Um, you know, Gomes was out the entire year. Perez was playing somewhat hurt. And then Perez comes out and hits two home runs in game one of the World Series. And Luke Ray sitting at home being eliminated in the first round. That felt pretty good. Uh, Luke Ray <laughs> actually blocked me on Twitter because I, I said something. <laughs> I said something sarcastic about Perez being better than him. And he, uh, he didn't like that very much. So I uh, don't know what he's doing, but I hope Luke is doing well. Um, Carrasco coming we'll back from leukemia. Up. Yeah, we'll, we'll send him a Christmas fruit basket or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, Carrasco coming back from leukemia, I actually had the opportunity through IBI to go to his first outing back and stand there and, and interview with him after the game. And really cool experience, you know, chilling, chilling moment when he walks out, everyone goes crazy for him. He looked really good in the, in the outing. His family was there supporting him. That was really cool and pretty incredible for a guy to, to do something like that. Um, Lonnie Chisenhall, nine RBI game in Texas in Ooh, June, about that one too. June 10th of 2014. Uh, after the game, he was batting 385, eventually got up over 390, but never uh, had enough plate appearances to qualify for the batting title. And then eventually finished the year at 285 or 283 uh, with 1.6 war total. Uh, 13 home runs, he cooled down, but they started calling him Lonnie baseball. That was kind of fun for a minute. Um, Francisco Lindor grand slam game two Yankees in 2017. I was at that game. I went to uh, game one and two Bauer pitched a great game, game one, but then game two, the up and down moment, we're feeling bad. Kluber has a bad outing. We're down eight to three. We start to make the comeback. Chisholm gets hit in quotes. And then Didn't Lindor comes up. I mean, didn't get hit at all. I mean, it hit the bottom of the bat. It, it was a tough, tough moment. Um, and then Linder comes up and blasts one off the foul pole. And I just remember, like, people were running up and down the sections and high-fiving each other. And the place was going absolutely nuts. Jay Bruce comes back, hits a home run in the eighth inning off of David, David Robertson. And then later in the game, you know, you feel bad. Every time someone's on base, you're like, oh, my God, we're going to lose this game. We're going to lose this game. <laughs> Torres gets picked off at second by Gomes. Amazing play. To, to get him leaning too far out. And then Gomes comes down, you know, a couple innings later and, and smacks the ball down the left field line over the bag. And Austin Jackson scores an incredible moment. A lot of fun. Uh, I'll never forget that one. Uh, two Kluber Cy Youngs 
Tito being named manager in Cleveland was a big one. Just getting that type of caliber of manager to come to Cleveland and want to work with us was a pretty cool moment. Uh, home run derby this past year with Vladdy Jr. and Pete Alonzo. All-star game with Bieber winning the MVP was really cool. And then lastly, just the Andrew Miller, Jay Bruce, and Josh Donaldson trades in successive years and making big moves to try to supplement the team when they felt like they were in their window of contention Really like seeing that. It gives you a lot of trust that the front office wants to win. And I believe that, but I hope it makes other people see that, that they're willing to do what it takes to, to be successful. So those are my honorable mentions. I know I just talked for like seven minutes straight, but Justin, if you would like to go through your honorable mentions now, <laughs> the floor is yours. No, you brought up some really good ones. There were some ones even I forgot. Like I thought I had a ton on mine. I was like, oh, I'm never going to talk about all this. And they seem ridiculous. But no, those are some good ones. I didn't think about some of those. Um, I like I said, I had some good and bad. I know yours are mostly good, but I thought it'd be kind of funny to to look at some of the the mishaps because you know, I've read verse twenty thirteen through twenty nine, well, twenty nineteen, I guess. But there were some other interesting uh, moments. Uh, the Corey Kluber trade was on mine overall. Just trading, not trading for him, not trading him, but trading for him <laughs> uh, for Jake Westbrook. <laughs> you know, that was a, a crazy thing to look back on uh, because nobody. You know, everybody said the Indians traded Jake Westbrook and we're trying to get into a contender in the last year of his contract. And uh, it was like, oh, this Corey Kluber guy, who's that going to be? And, and nobody really believed in him. And he wasn't very good in 2012, but he kind of came up in 2013 and shocked everybody and then was pr- a pretty nice rotation piece. And then uh, obviously blossomed into what he became. And uh, I was actually at a game he pitched. I didn't even remember it because this ties in. Uh, the Indians went 5-24 and 24 in 2012. I don't know if you remember that month. That was uh, August. And Vaguely. <laughs> yeah. It was, this, it was this Twins game I went to with a friend of mine. She actually used to write for IBI. Uh, I think I told you the story off, off the podcast. But we wore paper bags over our heads uh, after Perez blew the save. And I remember her paper bag said, uh, bring back Jeremy Sowers. And my paper bag said, uh, at least not the Astros, which obviously years later <laughs> is even more hilarious. But that picture surfaces every now and then. And I remember Perez blew that game. Yeah, they went 5-24 and 24 in August 2012. And Kluber actually pitched that game that Perez blew, and he should have got the win. He pitched six innings and struck out four and gave up two runs. So he pitched really well. And I, didn't, I don't even recall uh, him pitching that game. I just remember Perez blowing that save and everybody just being so livid. Uh, you did tell me that story off, off pot. I, I love that, though. I love the paper bags. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the one and only time I did that in my life, uh, just because that was such a bad month. I mean, f- to, win, to win five out of 29 games, that's awful. And that, that lineup was awful, so it's not a surprise they, they were that bad. But I, I've never seen – I know my you know, my dad grew up in the 70s and watched a lot of terrible baseball, but I had never seen anything like that. It was terrible. Uh, the, first, the first moment I actually had in my near miss, just because this was like – I don't know. I, I, I covered – I got to see Carmo, Fausto Carmona pitch as a Lake County captain – uh, when he was supposedly a teenager <laughs> in 2012, he got busted in the Dominican Republic uh, as Roberto Hernandez. And he was actually uh, two and a half years old when he said he was. And I, remember, I remember when he finally was off the suspended list, and he came back to the clubhouse and they gave him two birthday cakes because he had aged two, year, two years over the off season. <laughs> the back with open arms and gave him a, a birth, two birthday cakes to celebrate the two birthdays that he missed uh, with them. That was I – mean, he wasn't very good after that. He actually made the all-star team in 2010, I think. Uh, obviously, they weren't very good and didn't have a lot of good guys to choose from. But 
I thought it was kind of ironic he came back and made the all-star team that year. That is a good one. I always forget about that. I just remember, you know, texting all my friends like, oh, my God, it's not, he's not Foster Carmona. So my one buddy loved Foster Carmona. Just thought that his name was good. cool. His, his, feeling was, his, his feeling on the mound was cool. Um, so that was, a, that was a weird one for sure. What, sorry, what did you just say? said he was really good. I was at the bug game. The I was at the bug game, too. Yeah, that was that was unbelievable. That would have made if we would have done this podcast in 2010 or 2011, this would have been that would have been my one of my moments the last decade because that game was just so epic. Um, I also had Sinsu Shu going 2020 and 2010 because obviously those were some bad years, but Shu was really good. And then I also had the Sinsu Shu trade, which you know we can really even mention all the trades this decade where they turned one year of Sinsu Chu into what six years of Trevor Bauer. Three years of Brian, four years of Brian, 2013 through 2017. So five years of Brian Shaw, a year of Matt Albers. Yeah. Like that's pretty, that's pretty insane. They got that much value out of one year of, of Sinsu too. I mean, I don't think you could see him do that trade today. Arizona and Cincinnati had some interesting GMs back then. I don't think you could see him do that now. And then obviously turning Bauer into uh, what they have now, like you said, the Andrew Miller trade. And also a trade we talked about a few weeks ago, the Esmel Rogers trade for Jan Gomes and Mike Avilas and the uh, starting the goon squad. <laughs> uh, trading Pistano for Mike Clevenger, uh, the non-trade of Jonathan or getting Jonathan Lucroy. I mean, the Indians made some really good trades in this decade, even even before they got good in 2013. Like the Rogers uh, for Gomes and Avilas trade was important. The Clevenger Pistano trade was really important. Uh, even that was like 2014. The Kluber trade obviously set them up. They traded Shu in the offseason of 2012. They just made some really good trades this decade, which is, you know, crazy to think about how the, the composition of the roster came to be this, at least a good portion of the decade anyway. Let's see what else we have here. I've got, oh, I don't know if you remember, remember Johnny Damon's uh, stint with the Indians in 2012? I do. OPS. Yeah, he was, he was really good. That was a good, like, 40-something games. He had a 6'10 OPS that year. Uh, that was pretty brutal. Uh, Armando Galarraga's near-perfect game against the Indians uh, also came in 2010. Uh, you remember who broke that up, right? Yeah, it was uh, it was Jason Donald. Yeah, yeah. Who? Well, he broke it up. He didn't really break it up, but right. Yeah, yeah that, that was uh, that was this decade. Amazingly, I have a I have to bring that up the Wikipedia page on that because I wanted, I looked at the lineup for that last night. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this was the lineup that day? Um, that was near or – I think that was the day after Roy Holiday threw a perfect game in Miami. Yeah, four, it was four days. It was four days yeah. before uh, he did that. And Dallas Braden threw one 20 days before that on Mother's Day. Uh, yeah, that yeah, was – Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that was a big year for pitcher performances. I, I remember that distinctly. Mike Mussein almost had one that year. Yeah, I think Roy Holiday one. threw another one in, in the playoffs that year against the Reds because that was he my – Yeah, he threw a no-hitter. No-hitter. Yeah. 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 Chu was in that lineup. Trevor Crow led off that game. Austin Kearns played left. Hafner DH. Peralta was in the lineup. Russell Brandy was in the lineup. Mark Grunzelanik and Mike Redmond and Jason Donald were all in that lineup. What a, what a terrible lineup. And actually, Roberto Hernandez pitched that game, and he actually – only gave up two runs in eight innings. So he pitched really well. Both pitchers threw a complete game, but obviously Galarraga should have had a perfect game, which is unfortunate, but 
It is what it is. Um, that I can't believe that was this decade too. Like that, that seems so long ago. I'm looking at some of these and I'm like, yeah, that was that was in the last ten years. That's pretty amazing to think of all the things that that happened, especially because we get so wrapped up in the last several years of winning of all these other weird things that happened. I had the the Chew and Bourne signings because those were important. Uh, aren't you? Uh, Swisher and Bourne. You know, everybody was pretty excited for Swisher. Uh, I remember being a little bit less excited for Michael Bourne. Uh, I was pretty skeptical that um, – I didn't think he was going to be as bad as he was, but I was pretty skeptical about how good he was actually going to be. I remember being pretty weary of those skill set, that skill set translating year to year, especially uh, the way he was trending at that point. Let's see. Oh, Jason Kipnis is uh, 51 hit May in, in uh, 2015. He went 51 about that. 119. Yeah, that's just – that was unbelievable. I don't, that, that's something else you might never see. You know, a fifty hit in a month. That was incredible. That was the year he hit like over three hundred, pretty significantly, but hit, had no power. He had like nine home runs. It was was it twenty fifteen? Yeah, it was twenty fifteen. He had three hundred one or three hundred three, and he had nine homers and twelve steals. So yeah, he didn't really do a whole lot power speed wise, but he got on base at like a three fifty clip. So yeah, he was valuable at the top of the order. Just you know, unfortunately, didn't do a whole lot else. Um, yeah, Kluber trade the 14 game winning streak too. I know that didn't make either of our lists, but uh, I I do love thinking about how funny it was that I forget which window company it was because they have so many commercials. But <laughs> window company was like, oh yeah, if the Indians win 15 games in a row this year. You know, your windows are free if you order by this date. And it's like, yeah, okay, they won 14 in a row last year. They're not going to win 15 in a row. <laughs> what are the odds? And they went out won 22, 22 in a row the next year, but. I think people forget the 14-game the winning streak. And one of my biggest Twitter arguments, I hate to bring up a negative note about this, but this just kind of speaks to how I think the Indians get thought about sometimes in local media, especially radio. There were people who were saying, who didn't believe they were going to be a playoff team that year, didn't think they were good. They thought it was just kind of a, a fluke. And I remember people saying, well, if you take out that 14-game winning streak, they're really only a 500 team. And I'm like, that's, that's not how baseball works. You don't just remove games from the schedule and say, well, if this didn't happen, they wouldn't be good. And then people also assume, well, if you take out the 14-game winning streak, you just assume that they're going to lose 14 in a row. Like they might have won, you know, 10 out of the 14, won 10 and 4, which is still a good stretch. I remember that, I remember that argument that year. Just I was so frustrated. I'm like, I'm really tired of the narrative in the city. With They can't enjoy anything related to baseball. And it was going around like that. And just wanted to bring up how frustrating that was. It's super frustrating. People, I, I, I remember those those conversations too. Not quite exactly like that, but just people being really down on the on the on the tribe. And this is in the midst of the Cavs. Obviously, were playing well at that point, but the but the Browns were not. And it's always been a Browns town. And it would get me really upset when we would talk about the 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 teams and people would crap on the Indians all the time. And I was like, what? Why are you guys? What do you mean? Are you watching games on Sundays in the fall? Because there's not much better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I just never got that, and I remember being frustrated about that year. It kind of ruined a little of how fun 2016 was for me. But I, yeah, the 14 game winning streak was super cool, especially because remember it ended in what a they had to win in 18 innings. I think that's what it was in Toronto. Yeah, in Toronto. And then the next day, I think uh, God, who they call it? Sean Morimondo. Sean Morimondo got called the next day because obviously they ran out of pitchers, and that unfortunately ended Java Chamberlain's career because the Indians DFA'd him. Uh-huh. And 
he never found a job again after that, which I was surprised by because he was having a pretty good year that year. Um, Can I, I have to ask you a question. Do you, and I, I think I know the answer to this, but do you remember who hit the, the, the go ahead home run in the 18th inning for the tribe and who they hit it off of? Uh, it was Santana and it was uh-huh. off of, a, uh, oh God, don't say it. It was an infielder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't Devin Travis. Who was the other infield at the time they had to pitch? Oh, I can't think of his name. It wasn't Devin Travis. Who else did they have? Uh, who was it? I'm not going to get Ryan, it. Ryan Goins, I think. Yeah, Ryan Goins. I remember he was pitching late in that game. Yeah, Santana. Uh-huh. I knew it was an infielder. Oh, man. That was a good – that was a fun game to watch. I remember I remember watching that one. That was that was near 4th of July because all my family was in. We were all watching it together. And I was pumped up when we finally got that. That's when Bauer had that gritty performance for like five innings in relief or six innings relief and was showing all the emotion on the mouth. I think that's when he kind of endeared himself to – some Indians fans who were not really interested in his abrasive personality at first. And they, they liked the way he competed at least. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. And that, that kind of did set him up as more of a team player at that point. And of course, you know, later that year he had the drone incident, which probably for un, unridiculously, we didn't mention that the drone incident. I sure. think some people took that too far because that could have happened to anybody, but uh, the drone incident was also uh, a crazy incident this last decade. Uh, I also had Austin Jackson's Fenway catch. That was probably one of the better catches I've ever seen. Uh, not in person, obviously, but on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe in history. Uh, I put Michael Brantley's shoulder injury in there just because I think of how that probably changed the course of the Indians' last couple seasons. You know, uh, if he doesn't get hurt, you know, do they win the World Series because he's healthy all year? Uh, doesn't come back at all in 2016. Of course, maybe they, maybe they never sign Rajay Davis if he, if Brantley's healthy. So maybe Rajay Davis never happens. So maybe that led to something good. Speaking of, uh, real quick, just remember another one. Rajay Davis hit for the cycle. He did, and that was that was the day after the winning streak. It was the day the winning streak ended. Yeah, in Toronto. That was the game they lost because I think Kluber pitched. I think he got shelled pretty good. They, I, I, I remember them winning on like a walk-off. I kind of remember someone sliding into home and winning the game. I don't know if that's correct or not, but I do remember Rajay Davis because he was on my fantasy team. And I had to pick him up because somebody got, somebody got hurt. I got like 50 yeah. points because he had a cycle and it was awesome. Yeah, I don't remember that. I, I thought they got blown out. Maybe that was the Sunday after. I remember, I remember there being a tag at the plate and Ezekiel Carrera looked like he was out and they called him safe. And I remember Chris Jimenez was catching and I remember just being like, how could an major league umpire blow this call? It was a terrible call. Um, and then Sean Morimondo made his debut the day after the 18 inning game. And I remember that he was in Columbus or no, they, Columbus was out of town. He was with Akron. I forget whoever he was with, they were playing out of town. They weren't playing at home. So he couldn't get his passport from his apartment. So somebody from the Indians or somebody who worked for the Clippers or the uh, rubber ducks at the time had to break into his apartment, get his passport and send it to him to meet him at the airport so he could fly to Toronto and be in Toronto for the game the next day because the Indians needed a, a pitcher because the game went 18 innings. And I think Bauer was supposed to start the next day, and obviously he couldn't because he went a couple innings um, extra. But I remember that's how Mormano made his debut. I thought that was pretty memorable too. That's um, that. I, I found the box score. So the game after the one that we were talking about with the extra innings, we lost uh, nine to six. They okay. we gave up three runs in the eighth. We were tied going into the eighth, and then we gave up three runs um, 
Zach McAllister started, but Morimondo came in as the third pitcher in after Jeff Manship. <laughs> and then oh, um, the next game, you're correct, we got blown out 17-1. to Kluber started. He went uh, three and a third, five runs, four walks, four Ks. And then after that was Jabba Chamberlain. Tom Gorzolani gave up seven runs. Tommy Hunter and then Chris Jimenez gave up four runs. So oh, Tommy Hunter, that's right. And, and Jimenez pitched that year. I forgot they had Tommy Hunter that year. And okay, mm-hmm. so Jabba, Jabba lost his job after that because they had to DFA him for Morimondo the next yep. day. Okay. No, well, Morimondo was already up. I'm not sure if that's. I'm, I'm not sure when he got DFA, but it was very much after that. I remember. Yeah. I remember them getting rid of him, and I liked Java. So, also the guy who gave the no, he didn't give the game winning hit in the bug game. He just was. I think he threw the wild pitch. Yeah, I think it, I think the game didn't. Was it uh, Jose Contreras that gave up the game winning hit in the bug game, or it might it might or, have been your I don't point. think it was Mariano. It was not Mariano, no. I don't think it was because it was extra innings at that point. He'd already pitched. That's another one. But that's that's another decade. But just tying that back together because interesting that that moment happened. And that's all how people remember Jabba. But I remember also he was here in 2016, which wasn't that long ago. Uh, yeah, I mentioned Brantley's shoulder. And then that spun into Davis's um, cycle. And I just – it's a bummer that, sh- that Brantley's shoulder kind of spurred things the way they did, and he had the ankle injury that really hurt them in 2017. Uh, you know, I wish all that had turned back better. As, in as, as good a decade as Brantley had with the Indians, that kind of sticks out. The, let's see, we talked about the Jonathan Lucroy no trade. Who was that? It was Mejia, Greg Allen, Yu Chang, and Sean Armstrong. And yep. yeah, Mejia ends up going to San Diego for hand and. Greg Allen's still here, Yu Chang's still here, and Sean Armstrong uh, never quite made it, unfortunately. Um, yeah, that ended up being a pretty good no-trade looking back on things, especially considering how good Perez was in the playoffs that year. Mm-hmm. And I, I, would also, I would also say that if they had traded for Lucroy, I think that one of the reasons he turned that deal down was because the Indians didn't guarantee him to be the starting catcher in 2017 because they were still going to go with Gomes and Perez. And I think they were thinking about using Lucroy at first base the next year because they weren't going to bring Napoli back probably. And that would have hurt his value going into free agency, which is why he wanted the Indians to rip up his club option for 2017. He wanted to be a free agent. The Indians didn't want to do that. And I think that played a role in him uh, turning it down. But if he had said, yeah, sure. I'll play first base in 2017 or, you know, I, I don't have to be the starting catcher every day in 2017. The Indians might not have signed Edwin. They might've had Lucroy and that could have been a disaster because obviously he was, terrible after that stretch which is very odd how that happened so fast yeah no, i always forget about that but you're right they did they did not guarantee him the starting job so which may, i understand why i mean i was upset that he denied the trade because that was when we got miller and luke like back to back and i was like oh my gosh this is a juggernaut and you know obviously we didn't know that carrasco was going to get hurt salazar would still pretty much not pitch at all until the World Series and, and whatnot. He pitched in the World Series, right? In a couple of innings in relief? Or am I imagining oh, that? Uh, Salazar? Yeah, he did pitch in the World okay. Series. It kind of mop up, yeah. Okay. But, yeah, that was that was a big moment. That just goes back to the, the team being aggressive when they felt like our window was really opening. Not that it's not, not that it's closed now, but it was really the time to go after it. Before Lindor got to arb- arbitration, when Jose was just burgeoning as a star, Kluber was still – pretty cheap Carrasco was cheap and they went for it and I and I appreciate that and I know that they'll do it again when when the time is right and right now they're putting together a really quality club that sh- that should be able to compete and 
hopefully when some of these younger players come up and, and start hitting, like I think they will, because the team is so, so good at developing, they'll be back in that window again to spend a little bit more than, or spend more about like what people think they should be spending. Yeah, at some point that, that cycle will come back around. This front office is, is too good. The last thing I put on my list, I just remember this today when you were talking about something else, uh, was the Ryan Rayburn Bokoff um, against the Tigers. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a, a pitcher balk in the winning run. It was like a day game. I think it went like 14 innings or something. I, I think that was 2013. It might have been 2014. I don't know. Rayburn had a couple interesting moments. I remember when he spiked the ball into the ground with Cooper yep. on the mound. <laughs> that was another bad moment to remember this decade. But I remember the balk off. That was interesting. Do you remember? Do you know who the pitcher on the mound that was who uh, balked in? I don't even know who was on third that game. Um, I remember Rayburn was the plate. But do you remember I'm the gonna, pitcher? I'm going to take a guess, and I think I could be wrong because I truthfully don't really remember this game that much. I don't even know who we were playing, but don't tell me. I'm going to guess Al Albuquerque. Yes, it was the Tigers. Al Albuquerque. Yeah. Because you can't forget that name. It's one of the best names I've ever heard in my life. Al Albuquerque, a 95% sliders. That's all you got from barely, me. That name barely fit on the jersey. I remember how far it wrapped. That was hilarious. God, I wish I knew who was on third. I, I, I vaguely – yeah, I'm making this up. Maybe the Indians brought back, like, Ezekiel Carrera or something. Somebody random at that point. But I can't remember who was on third, who scored the winning run. But all I know is Raven was at the plate. And that was – I'm pretty sure that was 2013, but – and that was kind of a weird, a weird ending. I, you know, I looked up the, the game where was it Chu hit the seagull in center field that yep. was in a walk up hit. That was actually 2009, so it didn't even oh. qualify for this decade. Yeah, because I was like, oh, that's got to be on the best moments of the decade. Nope, that was uh, 11 years ago, not 10 years ago. I think we had some really good ones though. That was, I think that was a, a good exercise and the fun, the fun moments that we had in the 2010s and looking forward to some other good ones going forward and from 2020 to 2030, which is scary to talk about. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> or 20, well, 2029, I guess, technically, but, um, yeah, I'll be one of my forties. I don't want to think about that quite yet. God. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know I, I did put on here too. Grady Sizemore's last year with the Indians, uh, was 2012 and he missed two years after that. Um, but 2011, was the last time he ever played a game with the Indians. He was 27, and who knew that age 25, two years before, that would be his last good season. Rest easy, our sweet prince. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not to end on a sour note, but I forgot I skipped that. And I was like, yeah, Grady Sizemore actually played for the Indians this decade. That was uh, a real bummer. Oh, you know what? Jose Ramirez is also coming to prominence this decade, too. That was fun, because I remember I was actually working in the New York Collegiate Baseball League in 2012 um, as a broadcaster. So when he got called up in June – and I remember Dave Wallace, who was the manager of the Capitals at the time, and Ted Kubiak was the scrappers manager. And he he uh, he calls Dave Wallace and he goes, I just sent you the division. I think I think Ramirez had like six or seven games in Mahoney Valley and just hit the living, ever, living daylights out of the ball. And Kubiak told Wallace, yeah, I just sent you the division championship. Enjoy him. And he went up there and just smoked the entire league. He and Lindor were just – a dynamic dude. And I remember he was better than Lindor. I mean, he hit the ball better than Lindor. He ran better. He was just unbelievable that year. And I came back home in August from uh, working in New York. And everyone was like, because I, I was still covering the captains like almost every day at that point. And I had covered them in college until I left for the summer to take that job. And I get back and everyone's like, you know, you got to see this guy play and wait till you see him. You're going to be so excited. He's so fun to watch. And I came back and yeah, he was just lighting the world on fire. And then 
you know, in 2013, he was up with the Indians uh, down the pennant, down the stretch, uh, playing third base for Lonnie Chisholm. Obviously, you know, 2014, 2015 weren't good, and then he broke out in 2016. But seeing Jose Ramirez jump like that from being a nobody in 2012 to skipping double A at age or skipping high A at the age of 20 in 2013 and making the big leagues, that might be like maybe that's my top honorable mention of the decade just because of how far he's come. That's pretty incredible. That's a, a good testament to his work ethic and what he's made himself into. And now he's such a prominent contributor in our lineup and on a, on a team-friendly deal where it gives us flexibility to add around the fringes in conjunction with him. That is a pretty incredible story. And, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't remember that one specifically, but uh, pretty awesome for him that he's made himself into what he is now. I've got so many Jose Ramirez stories. There's some of them I just can't tell on the podcast. I'll tell you offline <laughs> sometime. I have so many, so many good Ramirez stories, so many good captain stories. Uh, I think that's going to that's gonna wrap it up. We both got stuff to do. It's Christmas Eve, and uh, we've rambled on for a little over an hour at this point. But that was super fun. We got to break down you know, some of the stuff about Cesar Hernandez, and we took a trip down memory lane, and that was as good as I had hoped it was going to be. No, that was great. I'm glad we got to do that, especially before the holidays. Uh, again, Justin, thanks for having me on. As always, uh, it was good talking with you and talking about these memories here. And then we'll get together, uh, reconvene here in the next week or week and a half and, and see if the Indians make any other moves of, of consequence um, heading into 2020. But appreciate you having me on. Hope that you and everyone has a great Christmas and, and holiday season and uh, looking forward to Tribe Baseball being back in about a month and some change after the new year starts. Yeah, that's my favorite thing is when Christmas is over and new year's is over, you can start thinking about baseball season. I get, I start playing in my fantasy league right after uh, to get that, the draft date locked down and start thinking about spring training and coverage for IBI. If you're listening and you're a regular reader of IBI, we'll have the top 50 prospect countdown. Of course, uh, starting in February when spring training counts down, I think Michael's going to be a part of it. If he has the time, I think it's going to be really fun this year. Uh, looking forward to that. That's all I want to plug is, is be on the lookout in the new year for getting back into prospect stuff once the Indians uh, hit spring training. So hopefully uh, you have time for that. If not, uh, you know, I know you got a lot of stuff going on, but I'm looking forward to getting to that stuff um, in the new year. You got anything else, you know, you want to plug in the meantime? No, not personally. Not, okay. not really. I think we did a good job, but uh, I'll definitely be helping out with the prospects. Uh, barring any unforeseen ch material changes in my day-to-day -day here. So, um, but yeah, looking forward to helping out with that and getting back into the baseball swing of things. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for listening. If you made it this far and we hope you enjoyed that a little exercise in uh, history as much as we did. Uh, we'll have a new podcast probably after the new year, whether the Indians do something or not, we'll probably have some topics to go over. We'll start prospect podcast too. I'm sure at that point, so I'm Justin for Michael. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. If anything, I, I missed anything. Happy all that. Uh, enjoy your family and uh, be good. Until next time. Okay.